Hey everybody, welcome to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. This is the podcast where Mike and I, I'm Dan, where Mike and I watch movies separately and talk about them for the first time on the podcast. Tonight we're going to be talking about Heart 8, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's first film, 1996. Mike and I both watch this separately and we're going to talk about it now for the first time. Mike, what's the one thing when one of us watches a movie, we always text the other guy? Don't read anything about it. Right, and that's exactly what happened with this. So I was going through um, the Criterion Channel, has, has a bunch of movies about gambling. I saw this. I had never seen Heart 8, and I was dying to see it because I, we love a lot of his work. We loved, we've done There Will Be Blood before. Um, so I, I watched it, didn't read anything about it. Instantly, I texted Mike, and Mike, what did I say? Don't read anything about it. Now, I think that's a big thing. I think that when you go into this film, not knowing anything about it makes the film a lot better. And I have more to say about that, but I want to get your initial take on the film. So what was your big overall take we talk about in part one? It seems almost intentionally difficult to draw a big picture about this movie because it's so fragmented. One, it, one very interesting thing about this movie is it leaps forward two years in time. All of a sudden, two characters meet each other. They set up together in, in the same city. And it, it, where you would expect in a normal movie, some kind of montage of their growth together, the movie assumes their growth together. It says two years later, and then a, a bunch of things are happening. And because you can see the changes wrought in one of the characters, but not the other, you can feel that time has passed, but you're not actually allowed to, to pass that time. And that, I think, is part of the way that the film works by submerging moments that you would expect to get in more traditional movies and highlighting moments that you would expect to gloss over uh, in more traditional movies. Well, the original title was Sydney. The studio changed it to Heart 8. Now, Heart 8 is a snazzier title. It's sexier than just Sydney. But Sydney's a better title because, you know, it's his movie. The movie's about Sydney and about him trying to, you know, atone for what he's done. And what I wanted to say to you in the beginning about um, how don't, don't read anything about it is, if you go into this movie absolutely cold, he is so fascinating i think as a character in the beginning besides the fact that he looks like jerry orbach's stunt double and it looks like um he he's almost supernatural i think when he first comes into the film it's almost like he's like um like Cary grant and the bishop's wife or like james mason and heaven kuwait he's like this otherworldly figure right um he's well dressed he's well spoken he's got poise right first line of the first thing he says in the movie to john c Riley. do you remember what the first thing he says to him when he's on the floor of the diner he says um he says uh do you want a cup of coffee do you want a cigarette? And he says, who are you? And he says, I'm offering you a cigarette. And then he's having this whole conversation. He's dressed oddly. He's full of this, these little adages, this wisdom, like, um, you know, never ignore a man's courtesy. You know, it's always good to meet a new friend. Um, he hates the way that Samuel Jackson talks, right? He doesn't like when he uses the P word and stuff like that. Um, every time he gets challenged by Gwyneth Paltrow, she says, you know, you think I'm a piece of shit. And he goes, no, I don't. I don't think that. And she says, do you want to you know, you want to F me? He's like, is that what you think? He's like, why do you think that? He's like, stop saying that. So you, you, it's like he wandered in from another movie and you're like, what is this guy doing here? And you kind of fall under his spell. Um, when he does the whole scheme with the rate cards, you're kind of like, you, you're, you know, that you're on his side. You're, you're watching what's happening. John is so full of innocence. He's like, oh, isn't this great? You can't believe it. So the first part I thought to myself, maybe this is a film about how people respond to kindness. That, that what would happen if somebody was just out of the blue, came up to you, you're suspicious. You're suspicious as a viewer, right? It takes a long time for John not to be suspicious. He thinks he thinks he's gay or something like that. Um, and eventually that kind of goes away. And it's funny because it goes away at the two years later mark. 
And then later on in the film, you find out you find out what's going on behind his kindness and what his real his real motives are. But I think it's a fascinating way that he blends an old style of acting or an old style of like presenting yourself as an actor in this in this um, very flashy kind of casino setting. I would agree with that, except that I do think that Heart Eight is a much better title. I think all the things that you think about Sydney and more, and we can potentially get into that with with our moments. But I do I, I agree with the title. Hard eight, and I think that the the studio did him a great service uh, by changing him if, if by changing it if if he had refused to change it. The movie set me up for a certain kind of a way of thinking, um, a, a suspension, a suspension of a payoff. Right? There's um, uh, if you're standing at the craps table, there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of waiting for a thing to happen. And I feel like that is actually the effect of of the movie, right? A a hard eight is one of the best payouts you can get in craps. It's like a nine to one payout for the double fours. So you're standing and waiting and waiting and waiting. And it's it's about what's going on the inner life of the other people as they're standing around the table waiting waiting for a thing to happen. So I think kind of the title puts the viewer in the right frame of mind to take in and appreciate the movie. Although I agree with you that obviously it's centered on on Sydney and the two years jump later makes sense with him as the anchor character rather than with John as a dynamic character. So welcome back in part two. We always talk about our favorite moments or those moments we think reflect the film as a whole. Mike, what's yours? So my moment actually picks up on what I was just saying about the theme of the film as a whole and about the title Heart Eight, uh, which is that it's sort of about the suspended moment where people reveal what they're like when they're hyped up around the table before a thing happens. It's not that they've won or lost. It's that they have the potential and something is not guaranteed to happen, but it could happen. And there's a brilliant moment where you see Sydney standing at the table and the guy gambling is the immortal Philip Seymour Hoffman in one of his strange cameos that he seems to do in in other people's movies where he plays an unforgettable asshole who is goading Sydney into placing his bet, waiting for his bet. He could roll the dice at any time, but he wants to see what it is. As soon as I light my cigarette, I'm going to roll it. As soon as I light my cigarette, I'm going to roll it. And of course, Sydney makes the title bet, which is he puts $2,000 on the hard eight, which would pay out about $18,000 if it hit, which as we find out is about three times more than his entire life savings that's that's upstairs in his hotel room. And I think that what's revealing about that moment is, again, how people act when they're in a, a sort of suspension. It, it, the, mo- the moment is indicative of the movie as a whole because we don't get Philip Seymour Hoffman ever again. He comes in very intensely. He runs the scene and then he disappears. And we're left only with the impression that he made in that character. And so in its fragmentary style, it works the same way the movie works. And in his disappointment, when it doesn't work, as Sydney walks away, he says, I'll buy you a drink. He wants more. He wants some other kind of connection, but there's no other connection to be had. And I think that that ties in for me to the original title that the that the film had, um, not, not Sydney, but that his student film had, which is Coffee and Cigarettes, which are... Um, of course, kind of the coldest kinds of comfort that you can have, but it's the only kind of comfort that Sydney wants, right? He doesn't, he maybe has a drink for himself, but he wears the same, the same kind of suit all the time. He seems very content with very small comforts. And while he's attached to John, while he's, while he seems to feel things for John and for the other characters uh, in the movie, he, he can't express them. He seems to have 
he doesn't love anybody or hate anybody or doesn't appear to love or hate anybody. He seems to like and dislike people. Um, he seems to do small gestures and small favors for people. Well, he can't. That's true. But he can't express his, his what he really thinks because he's 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 lying because he can't tell John the truth, which is what the whole blackmail thing with Jimmy is. Right. So he, it's funny because that's great about comfort, but he wants a bigger comfort. I mean, this whole thing is about assuaging his conscience. And so that's why in the middle of the movie, when it becomes a Sam Shepard play with the guy handcuffed there and they're and they're, they're going back and forth. He, he's only doing that to save John, you know, not, not so much to save her because he, he he can't reveal what he thinks. The close he gets is when he calls him up and says. I, I love you like you are my own son. And, and John gets kind of choked up, but that's like the closest I think he gets to, to, a, to an emotional breakthrough. No, I, I agree, but I think it's, it, but it's that very nature that's holding him back. How does Philip Seymour Hoffman act? He's obviously a gambler or somebody who's hung out. He gets hyped up. He swears. He's obviously drunk. He makes a fool of himself. Sydney is standing there until he's ready to make his bet. That's exactly how he, the decision to kill Samuel Jackson's character at the end does not come uh, at the moment where he breaks into his house. It comes in the moment where he gives him the $6,000. Right. We think that he's been contemplating what will happen to me. What he's been thinking to himself is, am I ready to shoot another guy? And he finally decides, all right, I am. Here's my money. Take it. But he knows he's going to get it back. He's way ahead of us the way that we said that Frederick Murray is ahead of Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity. You know, people think, oh, it's her idea, but he comes, no, it's got to happen on a train. He's got this whole thing figured out. And that's kind of shocking to us, too. But the trade-off for that, the trade-off for not getting excited at the table, the trade-off for keeping your head when the guy's handcuffed to the bed and being able to get rid of the cuffs and the gun, for being able to say the right thing to Samuel Jackson to, to trick him, is that is that while he's able to say literally what he means over the phone, he doesn't feel it necessarily the way John feels it. John, re John receives the words in the right spirit and cries like he's talking to his dad and they finally had a breakthrough. But the next words out of Sydney's mouth, even though he's managed to say it and do what needs to be done are, all right, well, give me a call when you get there. Thanks. So it's really, it's, it's the price that you pay for being the ultimate realist. There's a lot of films in which people get away with the stuff that Sydney gets away with in this movie, but they still get to have genuine connections to other people, honest connections to other people. It's neither honest in the emotion that's in his voice or telling John the way in which they're really related. John thinks they're related in, in, in sort of a fake way or a way of his of his own dramatization, that that which is our starting off point. So what's your moment? So my moment has to do with it's funny you just mentioned about when he kills Samuel Jackson, the actual moment, because you know, I think that the way that um, Philip Baker Hall plays him is so brilliant because his face is like, it's like a Rorschach test. So in the first half of the film, you watch him and he's the captain. He has his cocktails. I love how he sits at the, at the table with like figuring out stuff, like doing math and just smoking and being classy and things like that. So you're kind of like, who is this guy? And once you figure out what you learn, what goes on, all of a sudden, you know, his face isn't changed, but the information you have changes. And then he looks like, then you're like, oh, of course, he's the perfect wise guy. That's why he can do this. That's why he knows what to say to Samuel Jackson. That's what he does with the $6,000. That's why he knows to use his own gun. He figures out where he's going to be hiding his guns in the closet, the whole thing. Um, and I think my moment is when he sat in the chair just waiting for Samuel Jackson to come home. Even before he walks up the front walkway and your stomach starts to get tighter and he's going to walk in and he puts the light on and he's just sitting there and you see his face. You look at his face in a completely different way than you do in the beginning of the film. Same face, same haircut, same outfit, right? He doesn't, John's clothes get better. You know, Gwyneth Paltrow looks different, but he looks exactly the same. And it's fascinating how the movie does that to you, how we are manipulated so well. 
in a beautiful manipulation to see him differently. And it struck me that one of the themes of the film is a lesser screenwriter and a lesser director would have had the confession scene. There would have been, because you would say, that's great drama. You can have John's reaction. Like, what will John do? And I think it's great because part of the part of the film is about not knowing the whole truth about people and, and that being okay for your happiness. Because he doesn't tell John. Why not? Because he knows that would destroy him. It would destroy him. And confession is not always good. And sometimes you just have to live with it. And you can confess to God, but you, but confessing to another person might not be the thing. And Samuel Jackson is a mistake. The classic plot thing is somebody wants something and the person can't get it, right? So what does Sidney want? John's love. Yeah, right? he wants John's love. And he also wants to, he wants to be forgiven because his conscience is gnawing at him, right? So, what, so what's the, now someone in a plot wants something, they can't get it. Why can't they get it? In walks Jimmy. Oh, I know what happened to you. I know what went on in Atlantic City. And at first you're kind of like, what? And then that makes perfect sense. So I just think it's a, it's a beautiful way that Anderson has to make us look at the same person differently based upon the knowledge we get. So welcome back. In part three, we talk about the title and we talk about the very end of the film or the bigger takeaway. So Mike, what, what's your last thoughts on this film? Well, I had the same feeling about Sydney that you had, which is that he doesn't actually change through the whole film that we change, that he's not changed over time. He's not right. dynamic like the other characters, but our response to him is dynamic. And then I kind of put that together with his power over the other characters and the way that he helps out John. And he always knows, seems to know exactly the right thing to say or do. And he, he's almost he's almost godlike in a weird way uh, in inside the film, um, you know, where where the way that he loves John is is kind of almost too mysterious for him to for him to put into words. It's it's not the way it's not the way we, we react. We're all John's on the other end of the on the phone uh, crying. And I just I have a weird reaction to this. I really liked this movie. I would watch this movie again, but I have a weird reaction to it the same way that I do all. Paul Thomas Anderson movies, which is that they don't, they don't quite click, but they're all, they're all satisfying. Meaning I don't, I couldn't, you couldn't watch this movie and come up with uh, the signature Paul Thomas Anderson style, I don't think, or understand how he puts these stories together, but he always seems to, to make similar choices. I couldn't tell you exactly the way that this is related to Boogie Nights or to Magnolia. I, I couldn't describe it or chart it out or diagram it. They all seem to have his touch, but I can't find what that signature is. And I was just wondering if you had thoughts on that. Yeah, I think the visual signature are those long sweeping shots of how the cameras as much, uh, you are constantly being reminded that Paul Thomas Anderson is, is making this film. You don't, you know, but at the same time, you get really emotionally drawn into it. So sometimes it's it's like what Scorsese does in his best films. You're always aware that Martin Scorsese is there. When you watch Raging Bull, Scorsese is there. Every, he, he's present every second of that film. But the film is so emotionally rich and so well-written that you can almost have two things going on at once. Sometimes you watch a film and you forget about the director, that, and that's great. Sometimes the director shows off too much, not so good. But I think he just skirts that line. So in the beginning, like we said before, the whole rate card scene where he says, here's what you're going to do. Then you're going to go back to this thing. Like we are, we are putty in the way that John is putty putty in Sydney's hands, it's kind of like the way we are in, in uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's hands. Like we're, we're in awe of his style and Boogie Nights, I think, and Magnolia and There Will Be Blood are full of that style. Okay. So what's your take on the ending? So my take on the ending, of, of course, is that after he, after he kills Samuel Jackson, you know, the last scene, of course, is him back in the same diner, the same coffee shop, and he's just sitting there by himself. 
And he looks down at his cuff and he sees the blood on his cuff and he just kind of moves it over. And that is such, that is such a great touch um, where that's it. It's hidden, it's done, and it's going to stay hidden. And this is not going to come out. Nobody's going to go, you know, looking for Samuel Jackson. It's going to become unsolved, but he did it. He like, he fixed a mistake. And I don't think there's any doubt that he's going to get away with it. And I think that you're happy for John, um, even if you know that he's kind of living in a fool's paradise. But it's kind of like what John Stuart Mill said, you know, better. he said better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. And I think, you know, the movie kind of shows you both ways you can be. What's it like to have knowledge and what's it like to be truly innocent of knowledge? What's it like to be innocent the way John is? Thanks for listening, everybody. As always, if you like this episode, please like or subscribe. Let us know what movies you'd like us to do next. You can also follow us on Twitter at 15MINFilm. You can email us at 15MinuteFilmFanatics at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your suggestions. Um, and remember, Heart is free on Amazon Prime. If you have Prime, I guess it's not technically free. But you can watch it on Prime if you subscribe. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time.